0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, we are currently in the 8th chapter of John where Yeshua is teaching, and He's in the temple in Jerusalem, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles. We've been going over and over that, alright? Now, during the water libation, which was part of this feast, part of this ceremony, Yeshua yells out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. And Yeshua is claiming here, by saying, if anyone's thirsty, to come to Him. He is claiming to be the rock in the wilderness, who provided eternal life To all who come to him, come to him and drink. It's the it's spiritual water. It's the water of life. And he's calling them to come. And then during the fire ceremony, Yeshua claims, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's claiming to be the light of the glory of God. Now, all during this, this text here, this discourse, Yeshua is making comments. The Pharisees are questioning him. And then they get into this extended dialogue while the crowd is listening in and they're going back and forth. And then in verse 30, we read this. And as He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. So Yeshua was saying to those Jews who believed in Him. You see that? Some believe. So He addresses those people. He's specifically addressing the ones who believe. And He tells them, If you continue in My Word... Then you're truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, let me ask you something. This, this phrase here, many came to believe in him. Who's saying that? All right, it's John Eliezer, it's Lazarus, it's the author of the gospel, all right? He's giving narrative here, and he says, You know, he's been saying all this stuff, he's been teaching, he's been saying, I'm the light of the world. You know, come to me and drink. He's saying all these things. And then it says, many came to believe in Him. So writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, He says, in light of Yeshua's teaching, many came to believe in Him. Many came to believe in Him. What do you think that says about their spiritual condition? Yes, the ones, the, the this phrase right here that's in yellow. Many came to believe in him. What does that tell us about their spiritual condition? Saved, regenerated. All right. Well, let me let me go over a few things, and then I will come back and then I'll ask you this question again. Okay. R- remember what the purpose of the book was. Okay, the purpose of this book. He is writing these things have been written. He says. The book. The things in the book have been written. Why? So that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in His name. The purpose of the gospel was so you would believe. And when you believe, you receive life. Right? That's the purpose of the gospel. Now, what happens when people believe? They get eternal life. They get eternal life. Lazarus tells us that on that last feast day, many came to believe in him. Now, notice what we've seen so far in the gospel about the idea of believing. I just want to backtrack a little. We could, the whole book's about this, okay? But let's backtrack just a little to set your thinking. One twelve. but as many as received him, Christ, to them gave he the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. So what happens here to the people who believe in his name? They become children of God. You believe you're given eternal life. You believe you become a child of God. 3.15 and 16. So that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. I don't know how many times he has to say this, but he hammers it home, okay? For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. What happens when you believe? Well, you don't perish, but you receive life, eternal life. 336, he who believes in the son has eternal life. He's starting to catch on. He who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the believer has life. The one who doesn't believe wrath abides on him. Now, let's compare this verse with verse 18, all right? According to 318 and 336, what's the outcome of believing or not believing in Yeshua? Well, he who believes is not condemned or judged, 318, and has everlasting life, 336. He who does not believe is judged or condemned, 318, and the wrath of God abides on him, 336. Listen, it's one or the other. You either have the wrath of God abiding on you, you're judged, you're condemned, or you believe and you have life. There's no third option. There's no in between. It's one or the other. You believe and have life, you don't believe, and you're judged. Now, the word translated here, he who does not obey, in the New American Standard, it's translated, the, New King, the King James says, believes not. And this is, the, it's not the common word, for to not believe, which is apistheo. But this word used here is the verb apitheo. And the leading Greek lexicon of the New Testament, which is Bauer, Art, Gingrich, and Danker, makes a very helpful comment, I think, about apitheo, which sheds light on 336. Here's what they say about this word obey, apitheo. Since in the view of the early Christians, the supreme disobedience, was a refusal to believe the gospel. Apitheo may be restricted in some passages to meaning disbelieve or be an unbeliever. So, I think obey is not a good translation there. It's You don't believe, okay? And if you don't believe, you're disobeying because you're called to believe the gospel. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1.5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Now he says here the obedience of faith. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. He's called to bring the obedience of faith. Now, the significance of the genitive here, pistis, of faith is disputed. Some take it as a subjective genitive, giving it the sense of obedience that comes from faith. But I think it's better taken as an appositional construction and should be translated the obedience that is faith. Acceptance of the gospel in faith can be described as an act of obedience. Look at Romans 10.16. However, they did not all heed the good news. The word heed here is the Greek word hupokuo, which means obey. And Paul uses it four times in Romans. Every other time it's translated obey, but here they translated heed because they understand. Look at there's a parallelism in these two lines. They did not heed the good news who has believed a report. To heed is to believe. It's the same thing. They're saying the same thing. It's obeying the gospel. John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed out of death into life. Again, eternal life is a result of believing. When you believe, at the moment you believe, the second you believe, you pass out of death into life. This is not a process. This is an act. You believe, you're given life. Now, in a chapter where Yeshua continually tells people, you can't believe unless the Father has granted it to you. Chapter 6, all about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Let's look at a few verses. Yeshua said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. The one who believes in me will never thirst. So believing in Him, and He provides spiritual water, so you will never thirst. Look at 640. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have Eternal life. So everybody who believes gets eternal life. And watch what else happens. He says, I myself will raise him up on the last day. So you believe, you get life. You get resurrection life. 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 29, Yeshua answered and said, this is the work of God that you believe in him. If you believe, why do you believe? Well, it's because God calls you to himself and he gives you faith. That's why you believe, because it's a work of God that you believe. 738 and 39, he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What's he talking about? He's talking about, he says this, he spoke of the spirit. The Spirit is the living water. You will have the Spirit of God when you believe. So the one who believes receives the Spirit. They receive everlasting life. Resurrection life. Okay, all of that's just a reminder. I hope you get this sunk in your head. Believing equals life. Not believing equals death. Now, let's go back to our text. Many came to believe in Him. What do you think He meant? No, just, I mean, really, what do you think he meant? What do you think he meant by that? That they came to believe in him? Yeah. If it doesn't mean that they trusted in Christ and received eternal life, resurrection life, received the Holy Spirit, then Lazarus must be trying to confuse us. There are contradictions in the Bible if it doesn't mean that. Many in the crowd to which Yeshua was speaking They're listening there. He's arguing with the Pharisees. People are listening in. And all of a sudden, these people come to believe because God has given them grace and they come to faith in Him. And because they believe, they received at that moment eternal life. Now remember, Yeshua's in the temple. He's in the court of the women. There's a large crowd listening to Him. Going back and forth with the Pharisees. At other points, He talks to the crowd in general. This verse is telling us that in spite of the confusion of many and the anger of others that resulted from Yeshua's teaching, despite all that, many came to believe in Him. God opened their hearts, He opened their understanding with His illuminating and life-giving words. Now, what is so amazing to me is that in spite of the Scriptures that we just looked at, commentators are nearly all united In the belief that these are not true believers. You pick up almost any commentary you want. And look at this. The majority say they're not believers. Now, here's my first problem. Well, the Bible says they believe. Okay? So, you're in conflict with the Bible if you say they're not believers. All right? Now, here's the thing. And I studied this out. There's no textual problem in this verse. In other words, they're not saying, well, the better texts have this and other text." No, no. There's no text. All texts are in agreement. This is what it says. No textual variation. All right? The inspired, living Word of God says they believed. And all through this Gospel so far, if you believe, you get eternal life. And yet, most scholars, And most commentators say these are not true believers. And the reason for thinking they are not real believers is not linguistic. It doesn't have anything to do with the Greek. Because when he says many came to believe in him, that is identical to the Greek in John 3.16. That says whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Identical Greek if those in our text in verse 30 don't have everlasting life, Lazarus contradicts himself. The Bible contradicts itself. And the Greek phrase, pistuo plus the dative, believed in him in verse 31 is identical to the Greek in 5.24. So linguistically, there is no reason to think these are not believers. And textually, there's no question about these verses. It appears that the faith of these people is questioned because of the context. We know context is king. We know context is important. So does the context somehow tell us that these people are not believers? It would be strange to me that the context said that because, like I said, the text says they came to believe. Now, unless there's some trickery going on and he's trying to deceive us, but see, there's no other words in the Greek. It doesn't say they pretended to believe. They acted like they believed. They said they believed. They kind of, sort of, maybe believed. Doesn't say any of that. They believed. The standard expression used throughout this gospel. And when that happens, you get eternal life. But here we have believers that people say are not. Paul Harris writes this. There's a major problem with the context of verse 31. Jesus apparently speaks to those who trusted in him. 830. Yet becomes apparent that these are not genuine believers in the Johannian sense. Oh, wait a second. He just said, <laughs> Jesus apparently, apparently, speaks to those who trusted him. So they trusted him, but they're not genuine believers in the Johannian sense. What sense are they? I mean, if yes, in the Johannian sense. If you believe, you get eternal life. He says that all the way through. They seek to kill Jesus, Eight thirty-seven and 39. Jesus even says, Their father is Satan, 844. Now, along the same line as this, John MacArthur says, he refers to them as those who had believed, in verse 31, and yet I want you to know how these people are referred to. These same people, in verse 44, you are of your father the devil. So they believed, but they were children of the devil, MacArthur says. What happens to the person who believes See, earlier we looked at this, right? Hang on. But as many as received Him, then gave you the right to become children of God. Those who believe in Him. So you believe, you become a son of God. So when Yeshua says in verse 44, you are of your father the devil, what do you think is happening there? I think he's talking to a different group. Okay. How can he be talking to the same group? You believed. And when you believe, John says, you become a child of God. So their child, listen, it's not like when you believe down the road, about eight, 10 months, providing you do everything right, you become a child of God. No, no, no. You become a child of God instantly. The moment you believe the gospel, these people believed, they became children of God. MacArthur says, well, the Bible says they're the the devil. He does say that, but he's talking to a different group. Verse 45 and 46 later in chapter 8 says, But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? Now listen, verse 30 and 31 says, They believed in him. Here it says, They don't believe. So, what's going on? Are they believers who don't believe? (laughs) Is that ridiculous? To me, this is clear. The people in verse 33 through 47 are not the same. He's not addressing the same people as he is in verse 30 and 32. In verse 31, he says very specifically, Then said Yeshua to those Jews that believed in him. He's addressing a very specific crowd. Verse 33 goes back to the crowd because the Pharisees interrupt. And we're back to the crowd again. And to not see this, I Is frustrating to me, okay? Because, listen, you can't believe in verse 30 and 31 and not believe in verse 45 and 46. You can't believe and not believe. That violates the law of logic, the first law of logic, which is the law of contradiction. You can't be A and not A. You can't believe and not believe. You either believe or you don't believe, one or the other. John Piper, commenting on this, says... Sometimes it's going to happen that makes something is going to happen that makes Jesus say that some of these believers are not believing. Again, we need to deal with a little bit of logic, a little bit of common sense, because if they're believers, they are believing. Okay, that's the definition of what believer is. You can't have a believer that's not believing He says, look at verse 45, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. So what he does is instead of saying, maybe this is a different group, he says, "Mm, these people are not real Christians. Wow. Now, if you follow the third person plurals, they and them throughout this entire chapter, you find that there is a large hostile group that runs through the whole chapter. All right. And then there's a smaller group in verse 30 and 32 that believe in Yeshua, So I think we need to see verse 30 and 32 almost as parenthetical. Verse 33 resumes the discussion with this hostile group. So many came to believe, and he said to those who believe, if you continue my word, you'll be my disciples. See, the problem with those who say these are not believers is a theological problem. And the problem is with them. Their theology is off. The problem is that they don't see a difference between a Christian, those who believe, and a disciple. They incorrectly read believer for disciple in the text. But these are two different terms describing two different groups of people related to Yeshua. And I think, listen, to miss this is to not understand a lot about salvation. See, a person becomes a Christian when they understand and believe the gospel. At that moment, i keep stressing this because I want you to get it. At that moment, they're placed into the body of Christ. They're given Christ's righteousness. It's not a process. It's instantaneous. You have the righteousness of Christ when you believe. They are indwelt by God. They're as sure as heaven as they were already there because they are in Christ. The Scriptures make it clear that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. But the Scriptures also teach that discipleship is very costly. So how are they both the same? One's free and one's costly, yet they're both the same thing, right? Salvation is, I mean, Christianity, and salvation is our birth in the Christian life. Discipleship is our education and maturity in the Christian life. Let's look at two texts. You're familiar with 3.16. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes. Doesn't add anything else. Doesn't, you know... Listen, writing this, he could have added anything, believes and repents and is baptized, joins the church, you know, added all the things that are really necessary. They could have all been added in there. And listen, I go around and around with people who say you have to repent to become a Christian. Really? If that's true, then John messed up writing this book. Because he wrote a book about how to believe, and he never used the word repentance like, John, what did you, you miss something? I can't even really, you know. And again, we could argue the meaning of repentance. Metanoia means to change the mind. If you believe repentance means to change the mind, then I agree with you. You've got to change your mind. I don't believe in Christ. I believe in Him. That's a change of the mind. That's metanoia. That's repentance. But the Bible's usage of repentance is to turn from sin. Look at this verse. Luke 14, 33. So then. None of you can be my disciple, none of you, who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow, that sounds different than believing in him, right? I mean, you want to make that a believer? You can't be a believer unless you give up all your possessions. How many Christians we got? Mm, It's kind kind of thinning out the herd there, right? Discipleship is a call to forsake all and to follow Christ. How can this be talking about the same thing as John 3.16? Again, I don't see how. I see discipleship as a conditional relationship that can be interrupted. It can be terminated after it's begun. All Christians, every Christian, everyone who believes is called to be a disciple. But most won't follow. Because to be a disciple is to be a follower of Christ. And discipleship is costly. It says it right there. You've got to give up all his own possessions. In verse 31, Yeshua is talking to believers. He makes it very specific. Those Jews that believed in him. And he says, if you continue my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. So these Christians. He's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians, people who believe. What happened when they believe? They got eternal life instantaneously. They became part of the family of God. They're joined in union with Christ. They believe. He's talking to the ones that believe and he says, if you continue, then you'll be disciples. So now you believers have to do this so you can become my disciples. If they continue in the word. John Piper writes this. Let's be really clear here. For Jesus, true disciple is the same as Christian. That's the majority opinion, people. They see them as one thing and that's how they end up with lordship theology. You got to do this. You got to do that because he's talking about how to become a Christian here. So he's telling these Christians, if you do this, you'll be a Christian. See, if you don't distinguish the two, you get a little confused there. Then Yeshua said to those who believed in him, if you do this, you can believe in me. Well, I already believe in you. What do you mean I got to do this to believe in you? No, it's a separate thing, people. It's a separate thing. Yeshua is telling believers if they abide, they'll be true disciples. Now, disciples may or may not be genuine believers. This is a little confusing, but people can follow Christ, then not know Him. Attempt to follow Him. You know, you ever heard anybody say, Oh, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, there's people who try to live out the teachings of the Bible, but they don't know Christ. They're endeavoring to be a disciple, but they don't even know him. Today, we would call someone, we would describe a believer who is a disciple. We describe him as an on-fire Christian, or they're really excited about the Lord. Or, you know, we use something to make it, distinguish them from the herd, right? They're not like your normal Christian. These guys are really, they're a disciple. That's what the Bible calls them. And someone who's a Christian who's just kind of lukewarm, not doing much. You know, we, what do we say? Well, they're a backslidden Christian. Well, they're not a disciple. They're not a follower. John MacArthur writes this. So here we meet some Jews who, according to verse 30 and 31, had believed in Jesus. They believed because initially it's kind of easy to believe. They believed in Jesus. Why? Because it's easy. They call it easy believism. Anybody can do it, right? Well, you know what? From what I find reading, it's not real easy. I find it's impossible unless God gives you life. So you don't come to believe faith is the identifying mark of a Christian because you can't believe unless God has first given you life. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. MacArthur goes on to say, how can you tell a true believer opposed to a fake one? Now, that's that's not a biblical designation, but you'll hear it a lot. And here's his answer. Perseverance, endurance. That's the benchmark. If you continue in my word. okay. so here's what he's saying. How do you ever know if someone's a true believer? You got to watch them for a long, long time. They have to persevere. They have to endure. So you don't you don't get eternal life when you believe you don't become a child of God. You have to endure for a while, obviously. Because that's how you tell. And if someone's not enduring, when do you look? At what point in their life? What are you talking about? How do you do this? How long do you have to persevere? Basically, he's just saying when you trust Christ, you don't get eternal life because these people believed. They trusted Christ, but they didn't get it, obviously. Because they didn't endure. But I think they did endure. He's just confused with some other people here. He goes on to say this. So where there's no perseverance, there's no salvation. So that's, to me, that is adding to the gospel. To me, that is anathema, okay? You're adding to the gospel. You don't have to just believe. You've got to persevere. So if you're asking yourself, what about so-and-so? They don't come to church. They don't show an interest in the things of Christ. Pretty easy to answer that question, he says. You hear what he's implying? If you don't go to church, you're not saved. Now, those out there watching who are not in a physical church, don't believe him, okay? He's confused, all right? Like I said, this problem is not linguistic, it's not textual, and it's really not contextual, okay? The problem is theological. There's no problem with this context. It's a theological problem. The problem here is the view of lordship theology, which teaches that if a person is truly a Christian, they must do this, and they must do that, and they must do all these things, And so he's telling them they have to continue in his word. And so they say that's a Christian instead of a disciple. See, they switch them. And so you've got to continue in his word. So therefore, if you don't continue in his word, you're not a Christian. But the text would say, if you don't continue in your word, you're not a disciple. The mantra of the lordship people is no fruit, no root. They're fruit inspectors, okay? They're going around checking your fruit. Let me see what kind of fruit you got, you know? And we all have a different idea of what fruit we like, you know, to manifest Christianity. All right. All right. The problem with lordship theology is I see it, is threefold. All right. First of all, they have a problem with the nature of faith. In other words, what must a person do to be saved? What is the nature of what is faith? What exactly is saving faith? We've gone over this a lot of times. But let me tell you, saving faith in the simplest form is this understanding and assent to the propositions of the gospel. The Lord laid out the propositions of the gospel. You have to believe in me. You have to believe in Christ. You have to believe you're a sinner. You believe that you understand. First of all, you can't believe what you don't understand, despite what the Catholics say. All right, you have to understand it, and then you believe it. It's not some kind of faith in the sense that the quality or essence is different from other kinds of faith. They're not different kinds of faith There are different objects of faith. Believing is believing. And faith is believing a proposition is true. For example, if I said, well, he told me the check's in the mail, and I believed him. I can't verify that. Why do I believe? I believe the proposition that he told me. He said, the check is in the mail. That's a proposition. I understand the proposition. I know what the mail is. I know what a check is. I understand it. And I believe it. Okay? Now, if I'm sharing that with you, are you going to ask me, well, did you believe with your head or your heart? Are you going to ask me that? I'd be like, "What is wrong with you? What? Are... But in Christianity, how am I?" I was walked in a bathroom once somewhere. On, we were traveling, and on, you know, Christians like to leave tracks in the bathroom. I don't know. I guess that maybe it's reading material. I don't know. But this track was called "Missing Heaven by 18 Inches." In other words, you believe in your head, but you didn't get it in your heart. So I guess that's 18 inches. And I thought. Dang, so close. Yeah, 18 inches and you miss heaven. It's just... You understand what I mean when I say I believed Him. But when it comes to Christianity, we look for something other than understanding of faith. Faith is faith, whether it be Christianity or mathematics. Saving faith is taking God as words, believing what God said. Notice Romans 4.20.21. 20, Yet with respect to the promise of God, God gave Abraham a promise. He didn't waver in unbelief. In other words, he didn't say, I'm not believing the promise. He believed it. But he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to perform. God gave him a promise and Abraham believed it. That's faith. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. When we believe God's testimony, testimony about His Son, we receive God's righteousness. We have everlasting life. Now listen, please hear me here. I am not saying, not saying, that everyone who says they're a Christian is one. Okay, you understand that? Because it seems like everybody in this country thinks they're a Christian. I'm an American, of course I'm a Christian, right? I was talking to a man recently, he told me that he was a Christian. I kind of had my doubts. <laughs> so I asked him, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, if you were to die right now and stand before God and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? And he stopped. He got a puzzled look on his face and he goes, he said, I'm not sure. He says, I haven't been to confession lately. So this man, though he said he was a Christian, he really had no clue what the Bible taught about salvation. So I proceeded to share with him the gospel and his matter, he, it was he was really interested to hear what I had to say. He was like, wow, he'd never heard that before, you know? So that was something new. So don't think that just because someone says they're a Christian, that's not what this view is saying at all. I'm saying if they believe the gospel, they're a Christian. Now, the Lordship view has redefined saving faith. So it's more than just taking God at his word. To them, saving faith involves surrender. And I love to question him on this stuff. I'm like... You need to surrender to believe. You'd be part of the gospel, right? How much do I have to surrender? Because I can't sing the song, I Surrender All. Not with a clear clear heart anyway, a clear conscience, you know. I surrender all. No, not really. So how much do I have to surrender? I've never gotten an answer. Well, surrender is part of the gospel. Don't I have to know how much I have to surrender? I mean, you're leaving me confused here. If I don't, I want, this is, this is a serious matter. I want to know. They say it involves commitment, it involves submission, it involves repentance, it involves sacrifice. And listen, those additions are both linguistically invalid and biblically invalid. Faith is believing the gospel. Period. Period. Augustine, who lived from AD 354 to 430, wrote this. Faith is nothing else than to think with assent. John Calvin put it this way. For as regards justification, faith is something merely passive, bringing nothing of ours to the recovering of God's favor, but receiving from Christ what we lack. Saving faith is accepting the testimony of God. Do you believe that Yeshua is the Christ? If you do, then on the testimony of Scripture, you're saved, you possess eternal life. Benjamin Warfield, the Presbyterian who would not have put himself into my camp, said this, the saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith, or in the attitude of faith, or in the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. Man, I agree with that. It's all about where is your faith placed? So many people have a mistrust, misplaced faith. Truth, the truth is technically we are not saved by faith, we're saved Through faith. By grace are you saved through faith. Faith is the instrumental means. Grace is the efficient means of salvation. So we're saved by Yeshua. We're saved by His grace. We're saved through faith. I think you'd understand what I meant if I said to you, I put the fire out with a hose. Now do you think I took that hose and was smacking that fire until it went out? Okay. Hoses don't put fires out. Okay, water does. The hose is the instrumental means. The water is the efficient means, and faith is the instrumental means by which we are able to access our salvation through Yeshua. John Robbins, who was president of the Trinity Foundation, in the forward to Gordon Clark's book "Faith and Saving Faith," writes this. Now, let me say a word here about Gordon Clark. If you haven't read any Gordon Clark's works, this guy is brilliant. Okay, uh, he wrote a book on logic. That's amazing. Tried to get through it many times, just not smart enough to even get through it, okay? <laughs> I mean, he is a very, very heady individual. But Gordon Clark wrote a book called Faith and Saving Faith that talks about what we're talking about right now. And he was a reform guy, so this is it's particularly important coming from him. But here's what Robin says in the foreword of the book. Believe in the truth, nothing more, nothing less, is what separates the saved from the damned. Those who maintain that there is something more than belief are quite literally beyond belief. (laughs) Okay? So it's belief of the truth. That's what it's about. Now let me give you a test, okay? Um, What we've done so far, I'm going to give you a quiz and see how you're doing. All right, see if you're getting this. John 12, 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. That's cool. That's exciting. The Jewish religious leaders are believing in him. But, don't you hate those buts? But, because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. At least they should be put out of the synagogue. You know, if they confess Christ, they're going to get booted out of the synagogue. Watch what it says. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So, my question to you is, are these people saved? Yes, they are saved. Okay. Thank you, class. They are Christians. Now, the lordship view here would say, no, they are not Christian. Again, the Bible says they believed in him. But see, they can't accept that because they didn't confess him. And see, they believe confessing is part of what you got to do. And they love the approval of men. People, so if you're in this lordship camp, then you're saying, If you're an individual who's trusted Christ, but you love the approval of men more than God, and have we ever been there? Then you can't be a Christian. Yeah, bummer, huh? Mark A. Copeland, who is the author of the Executable Outlines, writes this. There are some who teach that as long as one believes in Jesus, they will be saved. Oh my word, there's people that teach that? Yeah, Yeshua, Paul... You know James, Lazarus. There's a lot of people that teach that. Okay, they teach that salvation is by faith only. Oh, really? But there is such a thing as an unsaved believer. I know it's it's sickening, isn't it? This and listen, most people read this stuff and they're like, "Amen, that's right, that's good." What an unsaved believer? Yeah, that's exactly. It's, it's totally contradictory. If you can be a believer and be unsaved, then the Bible is just totally contradictory. Makes no sense at all. This guy goes on to say, there were some who believed in Jesus, but were not saved. And why weren't they saved? Well, he's quoting that passage we just looked at, John 12. Let no one think that just because they believe in Jesus, they have a free ticket to heaven. I got absolutely free ticket to heaven because I believe. That's why I got a ticket to heaven. I, you know, I don't, he'll list all kinds of things you gotta do to make sure you're good, alright? Here's the thing, Lordship theology causes people to doubt the testimony of Scripture. The Scripture says, you, know, you go to Acts 8, Simon himself believed and was baptized. Almost every commentator said he really didn't believe. And I just think, well, Luke, you idiot. You're under inspiration and you're making a mistake here. You know? You said Luke says he believe. These commentators know better than Luke who wrote under inspiration. They know better than the scriptures because it doesn't fit with their mind. Because it doesn't line up with what they think. Listen, people, let's just go with the scripture. Okay? So the problem of the lordship view is their view of the nature of faith. How is a person saved? The second problem is What must a person do to know he is saved? In other words, the relationship between faith and assurance. Now, you understand what I mean, the relationship between faith and assurance. You believe. How do you really know you're saved? Do you have assurance of salvation? Do you know you're confident of your walk with God that you are in the faith? See, the Lordship view teaches that assurance doesn't come from faith. Assurance comes from holy, righteous living. Martin Luther said, For certainty does not come to me from any kind of reflection on myself and on my state. On the contrary, it comes solely through the hearing the word, solely because I cling to the word and its promises. Well, Luther said, God says if you believe, you'll be saved. I believe God. And I don't look at my life and say, well, how am I doing today? Am I still saved? Am I out? Am I in? Calvin says this, from one's work from the things you do, conscience feels more fear and consternation than assurance. In other words, and believe, can you relate to that? If you're saved because of the works you do, yikes, it'd make you tremble. It'd give you fear. Some days you might have a little confidence before God. You think, I did pretty good today. Must be saved. The next day, ah, I can't be saved. And you're just, you know, He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. You know. It's crazy. Calvin taught that assurance was of the essence of faith. Because you believe, you know you're sure. If good works are the basis of assurance, then the believer's eyes are moved from the sufficiency of Christ to their own works. And now who are you trusting? Me. Your eyes are focused on yourself. And that's what lordship does takes them off of Christ, put them on you. How are you doing? Are you living up? you got the fruit. If I seek assurance through examining my good works, my lifestyle, things I do, one of two things must necessarily result. Okay? One of two things. The first thing is, I will minimize the depth of my sinfulness. In other words, I'll see my sin, but I'll like, mm, it's not that bad because I'm a Christian. So that can't be really bad because I can't be doing a bad thing because I'm a Christian and Christians don't do bad things. So I'm good. It's not really sin. And you just minimize it and you blow it away. All right. The other option is I see, my, I see the depth of my sinfulness as hopelessly contrary to any conviction I'm saved. In other words, I see the sin in my life and I say, I can't be a Christian. I mean, John MacArthur says I can't be a Christian and do not go to church. So, I guess I might not be a Christian. How discouraging is that? People, our assurance is based on the truthfulness of God, not on our performance. His promise that He would give eternal life to those who believe in His Son. Assurance doesn't come from what you do, it comes from what He did for us, okay? So, the first problem with the Lordship view is the nature of faith. Second problem is the relationship between faith and assurance. And the third problem is the effect of salvation, or how will salvation show itself in your life? See, the Lordship view that teaches that Christians, if you become a Christian, there's certain things you will automatically, guaranteed do. You will live a righteous, holy life. You will produce fruit. See, if heaven can't be obtained apart from obedience to God, then logically, That obedience is a condition for getting there. They'll never say that. Well, we're saved by faith. But if you're really saved, you'll do this. One writer who holds the Lordship view says, The life of God in man will always produce a righteous pattern. And if you have an unrighteous pattern in your life, you're fighting against the very nature God created in you. He says it's like holding your breath living unrighteously he says it's like holding your breath it's a lot harder than breathing you know if if unrighteousness is like holding your breath then i must be missing something cuz i i breathing's not a problem for me i do it in my sleep okay <laughs> get the pun there but righteous, righteousness is not easy people we have to endeavor to be diligent before god to live a righteous holy life we have to live in constant dependence upon god you don't just get saved and all of a sudden... You know, you've know seen that commercial years ago where the white knight came through and he had the lance, boom! And all of a sudden everything was white and clean. Okay? That's not how salvation works. that's You're that way positionally. Alright? But the lordship position teaches you got to do more than believe the gospel to be a Christian. You have to live in obedience. And I'll tell you, I see that as adding to the gospel again. I think that is a very, very serious thing, okay? Because to me, the most important thing we do is preach the gospel and preach it clearly so people can understand what it is and know what it is, all right? Yeshua is the only person who ever lived in complete obedience to the Father. The only one. All of the men have sinned. And the only reason anybody will ever get to heaven is because of Yeshua's obedience. See, because you have to be 100% obedient to get to heaven. My favorite verse in the Bible, Romans 5.19. For as through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners. Because Adam, people became sinners. Even so, I love the other side of the equation. Through the obedience of the one, Christ's obedience, many will be made righteous. People, I'm righteous because of Christ's obedience. That becomes mine by faith. Listen, if you have to be 100% obedient to get to heaven, I'm in. I'm in. Because I've been obedient in Christ. I have his righteousness. That's why I'm getting in. So I'm 100% obedient. Some lordship theologians... Make it sound like good works are just a natural, automatic thing if you're really a Christian. See, they like that word really and truly. They like to add that because, you know, there's fake Christians and real Christians. The Bible doesn't know that distinction. The Bible never talks about a fake Christian, you know. It talks about strong faith, weak faith, growing faith, you know, a dead faith, but it never talks about pretend faith. There's no such thing. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote this. We have been clear upon the fact that good works are not the cause of salvation. Let us be equally clear upon the truth that they are the necessary fruit of it. Again, you gotta have this fruit, Spurgeon says, or you know, he's lordship, or you just don't get in. Good works, you gotta have this good works to prove that you have faith. Well, John Stott, anyone know you know who John Stott is? He's Lordship, right? He's lordship. Watch this statement. In spite of our newness in Christ. Holiness is neither automatic nor inevitable. Wow, that's surprising coming from him, but that is so true. Holiness is not automatic. If living righteously came automatically, let's say you got saved. I heard the gospel. I believe the gospel. I become a Christian. Automatically, I'm going to do everything that's right. Why in the world did the Lord waste so many people's time writing the New Testament with all these instructions on how to live? It should just, the gospel should have been like, you know, just a short little paragraph. Believe on the Lord, Yeshua the Christ, and you will be saved, and you'll live the way you should. That end up here. No. All these injunctions in the Bible, over and over, telling believers how to live. Why? Because we need the instructions. Because holiness is not automatic. I'm talking about practical holiness. Living right. We need to be taught how to live right. And you have to keep reading your Bible, because I keep forgetting what I already learned, and I read it. I'm like, oh, I'm not supposed to do that. Why does Paul give so many instructions to believers? He should just be telling them, get saved and everything will be automatic. No, we need instruction on holy living because it's not automatic. Holiness is not automatic. And I'll tell you, people, if someone gets saved, they become a Christian, and they're in an environment where the Word of God is not taught, and they're not around people who know the Bible, chances of them living a victorious Christian life are very weak. Chances of them being a disciple are weak. Because if, they don't, if they're not taught, they don't know. They have to be taught. That's why it's so important to read your Bible. And be taught the Bible so you can know what the Bible says. So you can live it out and you can be a disciple. Because he calls us to be disciples. Now just as in our text, God calls all believers to be disciples. But many are just not willing to pay the price. Discipleship is obedience. It's following. It's loving. Salvation's a free gift, but discipleship is costly. Salvation's our birth into the Christian life. Discipleship's our education, our maturity. Now, again, I got to emphasize this. Please hear this. Just because we are saved doesn't mean we can live as we please. Oh, I'm a Christian. I got eternal life. I'm guaranteed to have it. I can do whatever I want. Well, technically, you can do it, but it's going to cost you. Okay. Grace does not give us a license to sin or constant excuse for carelessness. Remember this. The Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Okay? I'll guarantee you this. To live in sin will cost you. Temporally. In this life. Okay? It'll cost you. Sin has a price to pay. And there's pleasure in sin for a season. The Bible teaches us that. But I guarantee you, believer, if you live in sin and you think you're getting away with something, you're going to pay the price for it. And I'll tell you, there's a, there's a parable in Matthew 18. You know the parable? This guy owes the Lord an unpayable debt. And he comes to the Lord and he says, you know, please forgive me, I'll, I'll pay you back all I owe. And he goes, well, you can't pay it back, it's unpayable. But the Lord forgives him. And he goes out and finds another one that owes him just a little bit of money. And he grabs him by the throat and he says, pay me what you owe. And the guy says, I don't have any money. So he throws him into prison. And then they go to the Lord about the situation. Say, hey, this guy that you forgave won't forgive somebody else. And the whole thing's about forgiveness. It's a parable on forgiveness. And this guy won't forgive. So what happens? The Bible says the Lord took that man, that believer, he had trusted Christ. He'd been forgiven his debt. He took that believer and he turned him over to the torturers. Very strong word in Matthew. Turned him over to the torturers until he should pay all that he owed. In other words, you want to live in sin, you're going to pay a price. Then verse 35 says this, God will do the same to us if we don't forgive our brother from our heart. I mean, it's costly to live in sin. Just look at someone who's doing it. It has nothing to do with your eternal destiny. It has everything to do with quality of life here and now. All right. You want to see some miserable people, see some Christians living in sin. It's it's costly, people. And there's a price to pay, guaranteed every time. Sin is horrible. And we don't just, I think we blow it off. Yes, it, it put Christ on the cross. That's how horrible it is. He put his son to death because of it. And he asks us listen, now that I've given you eternal life freely, without charge, I want you to follow me. I want you to live for me. I want you to honor me by the way you live. I don't think it's too much to ask. Now, i got to ask this question. What if I'm wrong about the lordship view? I hold the free grace position. What if I'm wrong? What if lordship's right? You know, I'll admit, it's a possibility. I doubt it. But, you know, I know I can be wrong. I know I can be wrong, so I have to leave it open as a possibility. All right? And here's the thing, people. I was lordship. Most of my Christian life held this position. Okay? I'll tell you what. Any position that's opposite of mine, I've held at one time. I really, I can argue with anybody on any position because I've held, I held both sides. You know, I started, the Lord showed me, you know, okay, He humbled me by giving me, I started at the very wrong end of the spectrum, believing everything that was wrong. And as I studied, worked my way to a point where I started seeing some things, all right? But what is the free grace position I'm espousing? What if it's not correct? Let's think about this for a minute. If I'm wrong, What damage would this view possibly cause? If the free grace view is wrong, it could cause people to think they're saved when they're really not. Right? Because they believe the gospel, so foolish them, they think they're saved, but they're not doing all these other things, so they're wrong, right? So, it it could be giving false hope to unbelievers, right? That's the worst I see. Well, here's, here's my response to that. So what? So what? All right. Do you believe in election? After going through John chapter 6, I hope you do. Okay? Will the elect ever be lost? Will the reprobate ever be saved? No. So in my opinion, the worst the free grace position could ever do would be give false hope to the reprobate. So what? You think you're okay. You know, you're not. If the Lordship teaching is wrong, what harm can it do? If the Lordship teaching is wrong, it can cause a believer, a child of God, to think that he is not redeemed because of the sin in his life. This view, view, Lordship, brings guilt to the elect. It puts the elect of God under condemnation. It can cause a believer to give up on Christianity because they just don't feel they're saved. I see sin in my life. I can't be a Christian. What's the point? The lordship view hurts the church by causing Christians to live in guilt and doubt. People, we're children of God. We're children of the King. But the worst the free grace view does is it gives the reprobate false hope. As I've seen, only the lordship view is harmful to the church. And that's all I care about is the church, all right? The children of God. We've got to be careful there. And that's why I'm so opposed to this view. This view damages the church. We've all got to admit that neither one of these views is going to change the destiny of the elect, okay? God's going to choose that, all right? Now, when I talk about salvation by grace alone, we don't deny, and I have to say this so many times, I don't deny that Christians are to live moral, holy lives. We just say no one can live a life pleasing to God until he's been made alive by God, by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. We're not saved by what we do. Luther said this. This is not against works that we contend. It is not against works that we contend. It's against trust in works that we contend. And that's true. You can't trust in what you're doing. You should be doing something, but you better not be trusting in it. All right. So our text says many came to believe in him. Let me ask you this. How did Yeshua know that in this huge crowd, some people came to believe in him? Well, you can't see it in the English, okay? But in the Greek text, it says he gave an altar call, all right? And thousands of people came forward. So he said, oh, there's my believers. There's my... And you know, of course, I'm just kidding you. The Greek doesn't say that at all. But I want you to notice there's nothing in here about an altar call. There's nothing in here about signing a card, joining a church, getting baptized. They believed. And Yeshua's God, and he knows who believed. All right? So he stopped and said, Wow, well, i got a lot of believers here now. Let me address them. So Yeshua's saying to those Jews, he stopped talking to the Pharisees, stopped talking to the crowd, he's focusing on believers, specifically. And he says, If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. All right, this is a third class conditional sentence, which means potential action. In other words, maybe you will, maybe you won't. That's up to you. If you continue. Now, the word continue here is the Greek word mano. This is a favorite word of Lazarus. This is is a word that means a lot to Lazarus. He uses it over and over. Mano means to remain. If you remain in my word, it means to continue, uh, uh, to dwell. Beasley Murray, I think, has done the best job of expressing what this word means. He says this. Mano signifies a settled determination to live in the word of Christ and by it. Man, I love that because, you know, a lot of people try to live in the word of Christ. They just don't live by it. You know, I want to read. I want to read. I want to understand it all. They don't do it. It, Mano is to live in the word and by the word. And so entails a perpetual listening to it. Reflection upon it. Holding fast to it, carrying out its bidding—that's what Mano means. You're in the Word of God. You're abiding. You're dwelling. You're remaining in the Word, not just hearing but following. Yeshua is addressing believers here, so believers are to continue in the Word, and when they do, they'll be His followers, His disciples. A disciple, by definition, is a follower, a learner. These rabbis all had disciples. They would follow them around, you know, try to learn from them. A disciple remains a disciple as long as he continues to follow the instruction of his or her teacher. So if you call Yeshua a Rabbi, you should be following his teaching. And when a person stops following, they cease to be a disciple. They don't cease to be a Christian. But they get into that area where they're going to pay the price if you're not following Yeshua. Yeshua goes on to say, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Oh, people, that is incredible. This is, this is spoken not to believers. How many believers do you know live in deception, live in bondage? This is spoken to disciples, the one who dwell, dwell, men know, in the Word of God. You're spending time in the Word. You're abiding by it. You're listening to it. If as a disciple we continue in the Word, we're going to know the truth. And the truth is going to set us free. You know, as Americans, we value freedom. Our nation is founded on the principle of liberty and justice for all. But there's different kinds of freedoms. You know, we, we value political freedom, civil freedom. But you may have those things and still be a slave. You may not have religious freedom. You may bow before a piece of wood. How many people do that? They may reverence a piece of bread in some religious ceremony. They may live in bondage to a lack of assurance. That's mental slavery. Mental slavery of a religious kind. It may be a slave to religious superstition. Oh man, there's so many people like that. I met people, no, 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 they freak out. Don't say anything on the Bible. I'm like, if you want to reverence this book, read it and live it. Okay? That's how you reverence that book. All right? Those who believe in Yeshua are capable of being set free, but that freedom emerges as the believer abides, mano, in Yeshua's teaching. Disciples abide in Christ's word, and they learn the truth, and the truth sets them free. It sets them free from legalism. How I many Christians you know are so bound up in legalism? Is it's sickening. They're miserable. Ritualism, performance-oriented human religiosity. Abiding in his word frees us from all the false doctrines that the church has taught down through the years. And it all comes about by getting in the word and studying the word for itself. Not what somebody else says about the word, but what the word says. As we abide in the word, we learn, we grow, we see things we never understood. And you say, well, I never was taught this. I didn't understand this. One area of life, one of many that I've been set free in, is from Lordship Theology. Because this is where I came in at. I was Lordship. I believe I was, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, okay? As far as Lordship goes. Everybody I met, I would judge and I would evaluate. You did something, you can't be a Christian. You drank a beer, poop, you're scratched. You cuss, boop, you're off the list. You know, I mean, I had a list, okay? I had a line drawn right below me. <laughs> And if you didn't get above that line, you weren't, I, I mean, and so you're constant living in this judging everybody, you know, feeling they're not a Christian. Well, I can't do this with them because they're not a Christian. You know, I can't be around them. They're not a Christian. They say they are, but I know they're not. That's horrible. And then one night, I got in this discussion with a graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary. And we went in late into the night arguing about this. I was so angry. He's arguing the free grace position. I'm arguing the lordship position. And I mean, we're going at it. My wife's like, can we please go home? It is so late, you know. So finally we go home. She goes to bed and I go to my office and I get on my face before God. And I said, God, this is ridiculous. This view, I can't believe it. But I said, if it's true, don't let me miss it. And I'll tell you what, God... Over the next six months, began to do a work in my life and open my eyes. And when I came to see this, a weight lifted off my shoulders and freed me. Like I just can't explain. All of a sudden, I could accept other people without judging everything they did and said. They told me they were believing enough. I understood that they knew the gospel and believed that I'd accept them. What a freedom. What a freedom for my own life. So many verses that bothered me. So I, I don't know if I'm really a Christian. When you understand the gospel, it's freeing. When you get in there and begin to become a disciple, you're digging in the Word of God. It's a beautiful thing, people. It's a beautiful thing. We need to study the Bible, not what someone else says about the Bible. Like I said, all these guys, you know, most people we read these commentaries and we just say, Yep, he's an unbelieving believer. And no, that doesn't even bother anybody. They just go on. Okay? Well, so our Lord says to these believers, He says, you're going to know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's beautiful. Get in the Word of God and you'll know it. And it's freeing. (laughs) Glenn said to me earlier today, the truth does set us free, but sometimes it makes us mad first. (laughs) Is that true? Man, there's been plenty of truths. I'm like, what? The doctrine of election. I thought it was from the pit of hell. I did. I fought that tooth and nail, and the week that I came to see it was true. Oh my word! I spent a miserable week in my office, banging my head on the desk, you know, saying, "How could this be? How could, how could I miss this all? You know, all this time." But I told you I was studying through James, and James one eighteen says, "Of his own will be he us with the word of truth." And I'm like, "His will? What about my will?" And I'm like, "My will doesn't play a part in this." And I'm like, "Oh my word." One thing to me, it, it's, it's heresy, it's damnable, next thing I'm believing it. <laughs> but I keep praying, Lord, just show me. All I care about is the truth. I don't care where I end up. I don't care what I believe. I just want to know that it's true. I want to line up with the Word of God. Anything else is foolishness, people. If you study the Word of God to prove a point, you're wasting your time. Just study to know what the Word of God says and, and do your best to understand it. And look at when you find out you've been wrong. Change your mind, repent, and go on, brother. Just keep on moving, okay? Learn and grow. Alright. So. The Lord's talking to these people. You're gonna know the truth. Truth's gonna set you free. They're in the temple. And everybody hears this. Well, this ticks off the Pharisees. Right? He's not talking to them. But it ticks them off. And they respond by this. They answered him. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to (laughs) anyone. Do you understand how ridiculous that statement is? How is it that you say we'll become free? Well, first of all, he's not talking to them. Who is the they here? This is an extremely important question to understand in this text. This means everything. And I'm inclined toward the view that there are both believers and unbelievers in this crowd. Yeshua speaks the words of 31 to 32 to the believers... But the unbelievers who are present interrupt him. And again, want, want to engage Yeshua in a debate. So Yeshua begins to address the Jews who have believed. And then the subject and the audience shift in verse 33. That's the only way that makes any sense at all, people. Any sense at all. This view allows the many who came to believe in him to mean what it says that they believed in him. Because if you want to take verse 30 and say they believed but they really didn't, then you just, you'd throw logic out totally out the window. You make John a mess. You make the whole Bible a mess because it says things that aren't true all over the place based on your assumption. It's a different group. Now, from 33 on, we're going to deal with the Pharisees and that's why he says you're your father of the devil. You don't believe. He says all kinds of horrible things to them because they're not believers. He's done addressing the believers and I'm done addressing you. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your grace in our life. Lord, this... This message is so important to me, Father. There's nothing more important to me than people understand the gospel of grace. It's free. And it's all of you. By grace, we're saved through the instrumentality of faith. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would comfort believers through the scriptures. We wouldn't wrestle with assurance. We'd know if we believe your promise is sure. Father, I pray that people would escape from the damnation of lordship theology and come to understand the truth of the gospel of free grace. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Amen.